This episode is brought to you by the generous support of LawPay, a Texas member benefit provider. Getting paid just got a whole lot easier. Check them out at LawPay.com. That's L-A-W-P-A-Y.com for more details. And now, on to the show. So welcome, everybody, to the State Bar of Texas podcast. We are recording on site from the 2022 annual meeting in Houston, Texas. This is your host, Rocky Deer. Joining me now, we have Simon Tam. Simon is probably one of the coolest guests we've had on this podcast. He is the founder of an actual, it's an actual rock and roll band. I mean, like this. We this, try. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it, it's a lot of rolling for sure, right? You guys are rolling to we this roll. city and that and city. And a lot of anding too. And a lot of anding. So the, the rock is a part that we're still, yes. the, the jury, as we say, is still out as far as you're concerned. Well, Simon gave the keynote address on the Friday, June 10th luncheon. And let's just say that if he's not sure if he's rocking, he certainly rocked it up there. So you, you had a great session oh, up there. Well, thank was, you so much. Fun, fun watching. Tell us, tell us a little bit, you know, about the slants and what kind of music you guys do for those that may be uninitiated. And for those that are wondering and that may not know, the slants is an all Asian American band. Okay. So before anybody says, oh my gosh, that's an offensive term, which is actually going to be part of the topic today. You know, let's let's hear from Simon about the actual band itself. What kind of music do you well, guys do? do? Kind of like synth pop music, really influenced by the early '80s, like new wave music, like Depeche Mode, The Cure, New Order. But we try and bring a modern rock and roll twist to it. So kind of like the Killers before they started to try and sound like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're we're throwing some shade now. Like this is this is getting controversial. I'm a fan of both. The Killers and Springsteen, so it's okay. Okay, okay. So that's like it, it could be seen as a compliment as yeah, well. Yeah, it's like a in crowd joke, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. I, I'm, I, I'm so old and unhip. I am always out. I'm never in. So <laughs> that's that's just how it is. So before we before we really get into the music itself, what really brought you here to the state bar is that you've had. We, I guess we can call it a run-in with the law, although not on the criminal side, but you've had a run-in with the law. Not that people know of, but yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> not that you're willing to talk about on the record, right? So the name The Slants, first of all, how did you come up with it, and why did it get you in hot water with the law? Well, The Slants is kind of a nod to our community reappropriating this term and trying to kind of seize power uh, from from its use. You know, it comes from this like outdated stereotype that all Asians have slanted eyes, when in fact uh, we, we don't. Not all Asian people have slanted eyes and, and you know, we're not the only people that have slanted eyes. So I thought, what if we took this uh, kind of outdated false stereotype and turn it on its head? So we decided to do that. And on top of that, it sounds like a cool 80s new wave band. It, it, it is a cool name, right? So, like, Regardless of the... Yeah, a lot of... And, and that's the most important thing when you're starting a band. you right. got to have a good name. And it's like so, the Bangles, right? The I Bangles, mean, yes. I'm, I'm trying to think, like, you know, there was... What was it, Phil Collins' band? Well, Genesis. Genesis. Great name, that right? That is a great name. And it's so, better than Phil Collins. It is. He, he it dropped is. the Genesis later, Yeah, it, it, I think it went downhill after that. It, but Yeah. He was... But so, 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 so you... So you you pick up on this cool name now. Before we go any further, so for those for those who may not have ever had the ever had the detrimental privilege of having actually seen me, I'm I'm of Indian origin, right? My family's from India. I was born there. When you say Asian, what does that mean to you? Because when you say an Asian band, it sounds like it sounds like from your perspective, it's mostly East Asian. You know. Well, we've had folks from uh, kind of across the board, but sure. it's mostly been Southeast Asian, just because. Um, 
I, I haven't encountered too many South Asian musicians, sure. but we've had some like Pacific Islanders, like Filipinos in there. I think we've had Vietnamese, Korean, Taiwanese, which is what my background is, Chinese, Japanese. So right. um, like, like a buffet with like a little bit of this <laughs> and that. And, uh, you know, we try and embrace that term. Like the term Asian, Asian Pacific Islander really is more of a declarative term of power. Like it originated in the 1960s and it was really saying like, hey, you know, this broad random geographic area that people choose to include some races but not others. Right. We have very similar experiences and we need to work together to develop a political voice and power. So that eventually the rest of the world started catching on realizing that we weren't either these desperate communities like uh, you know Chinese, right. Vietnamese, right. Cambodian, etc. Um, but we, we could actually work together to achieve greater results, especially since we do experience many of the similar types of marginalizations, uh, marginalizations from the systems. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you say the term Asian, say in the UK, they're referring mostly to my type of Asian. They're sure. referring to Indians, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans. But then when you come here, people seem to, people seem to, to associate the term Asian with mostly East and Southeast Asian. And, and then I remember in college when somebody would say, oh, so-and-so's Asian. I was like, well, I'm Asian too. And they're like, no, you're not. And they thought, they were like, no, you're South Asian. And I was like, but how come we only get one part of the continent and everybody else gets the rest of the continent? And then yeah. what about Siberians, right? And so, I, it, I, you know, I'm married to someone of Russian descent. And so does that come up? Yeah, because people are like, how come you're so obsessed with Asian culture, but you married a white lady? I was like, hey, excuse me, did you know that over 75% of Siberia is actually in Asia? And right. Like, and it also just kind of goes to show how race is oftentimes a social construct, that the lines we create are sometimes arbitrary and based in power and history and culture and more than anything else. And, and so I think that that's an important discussion we need to have is, sure. as a culture. So, so when, you, when you decided to name your band The Slants, you said... It was really, a, really a, an effort at redeeming and, and kind of reclaiming, rather, th this term that was being used against you, right? Yeah, that was absolutely. being used to, to kind of bully and kind of cajole you when you were younger. And I think, I think many, especially East Asian and Southeast Asian folks have experienced that. Now, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office saw it differently, right? And I, and I know we, we won't have time to go into all the details, but they decided that you don't get to use the name Slants, right? What was their reasoning behind that? Well, they decided that our name was disparaging to persons of Asian descent. Uh, they used this kind of uh, <laughs> thing called Section 2A of the Lanham Act, which says you can't register trademarks that are considered scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. And in our case, they said, hey, the term the Slants is disparaging to people of Asian descent. And so... Uh, that sparked a very, very long legal battle that, you know, spanned about a decade of my life or so. And right. it, it took us uh, eventually to the Supreme Court. And, and after, after losing it almost every step of the way, finally the Supreme Court saw things your way. And they said, no, you get to use this term and you get to have it trademarked. Yeah, they, uh, they unanimously struck it down as unconstitutional because of the First Amendment. Now, so was it was it First Amendment grounds, or was there some other aspects to the ruling that... Well, by the time we got to the Supreme Court, they limited all arguments to just the First Amendment. That's, that's all they were interested in. That's all they wanted to talk about, yeah. And so we won it because they, they did, you know, believed that it was viewpoint discrimination. Hmm. Uh, 
And, you know, and part of this is like saying it didn't even hold up to strict scrutiny because like the, the program itself, it wasn't necessarily a government funded program. It's funded by applicants at, at the trademark office. And so they're saying, but even if it were like under strict scrutiny, it wouldn't even pass muster there. And, and, and the reason being that they're saying you as an applicant have the right to call yourself whatever name you want, presumably. So, so does that mean that if, if, you, were, if you were an all-white band or, or an all-black band or you know, so, some other ethnicity, would, under that ruling, would that be okay for that group to then take a term like the slants and if it was available to trademark it? Or is it, is it fact-specific based on who's asking for it? No, no. They, so they actually struck down the disparagement provision. So oh, okay. any, anyone can register any kind of trademark as long as it meets the criteria of it actually being a trademark. So Got it. you have to okay. have things like secondary meaning, has to be like a unique product identifier and that sort of thing. So a lot of people assume that, hey, this is going to open up like this floodgate of like all oh, this right. like racial slurs being registered trademarks. But the reality is, like, unless you actually have a unique product identifier, like, you can't just go and register, I don't know, Swatsika or something like that, because it doesn't qualify as a trademark. Right. Um, and it's very bad business to do that anyway. Well, sure. Yeah. So, so now that kind of area, and, and later on, like a year after mine, there's another case in Ray Brunetti that uh, struck down the the scandalous and the immoral provisions of, of the Lanham Act. So now uh, the kind of content... Um, can't be used as an excuse. Interesting. Okay, so now y- you went through this, and, and you mentioned this was like a decade of your life. That was that was basically, I guess it wasn't dedicated, but it was largely dominated by this by this case. You know, do you think having gone through that, did that, d- did it kind of help help kind of give you and your band a new purpose? Did it did it actually raise your profile? I mean, what was I guess, for lack of a better term, was it good for your career as a musician to actually have gone through this? Or uh, Well, I think more than anything else, it was kind of a distraction from that. So okay. I, I actually walked away from being a full-time musician to pick up odd jobs to pay for all the, the filing fees along the way, which started to accrue pretty substantially, especially as we it's were hitting the federal circuit. And so... I also lost band members as a result because I mm-hmm. saw more and more of my focus, my time, money, and energy going towards the case and, and less of it going towards the band. And while it did raise our profile in things like, you know, certain intellectual property law <laughs> publications and uh, very geeky, you know, podcasts and news articles, those audiences didn't necessarily I take offense to the geeky podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't translate to like a rock and roll crowd. Like they, they wanted to hear me speak. They didn't want to hear our band play our music, and so okay. it, it made it um, really difficult. And I think it really kind of forced me to come to a reckoning. Like, was I an artist? Was I an activist? Could I be both? And how was I truly expressing the values that I wanted to express? Is it through music or is it through these like legal battle? And I realized that, you know, just navigating that was a pretty difficult and arduous journey that took me like several years to kind of like process. So, so what's the answer? Are you a musician? Are you an activist? Are you something else? What, what, 
I would like to think of myself as all of the above. I, 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 I used to think of arts and activism as two separate things, but sure. I realized that they're very, very similar in, in so many ways. Like They both involve envisioning a world that is different and that is better, and they both require a lot of persistence and work in order to bring that reality to life. Well, okay, so I was talking to you about this briefly before we started, before we, we actually got on air. And it's that, you know, for about the last year, I've been doing stand-up comedy, you know, in, in the evenings. And one thing I've noticed with, with, with comedy is that there are words that certain communities will use that others can't. And so this, this issue of reclaiming, you know, I've, I've heard it before. So, for example, with the black community, there's, there's a word, you know, it's, it's the N-word, and you'll see black comedians using it all the time. There's Chris Rock, there's Dave Chappelle, and there's, you know, a, thousands that are less famous. We're using that term fairly regularly. And the reasoning being that it's, it's now, it's, it's, a, it's a reclaiming process. You said, you said that for you, using the term slants was also an effort at reclaiming what once was a slur and might in some ways still be a slur to some people. Now, the difference I see though is the slants is now a term that the general public gets to use because it's your name, right? Whereas the N-word the general public still can't use it. You've got to be a member of a particular community to be able to use that and do so credibly. Do you see there, do, do you see there being, you know, is it problematic to you that, that the term slants is now more available or do you think that defangs it? You know, what do, how, do, how do you reconcile that when we talk about this issue of racial slurs? Yeah, I think language is a very complex and murky area because it really depends on both intentions as well as shared definitions. Okay. And as a result, it's kind of like this in-between place of like what a phrase could be. Anyone can use any phrase and make it an incredibly offensive and derogatory term, just as other folks can take those same terms and make them terms of empowerment. Like I think about the word queer, Mm -hmm. the LGBTQ community has fully embraced that as as an empowering kind of term. And there are many other terms. 40 years ago, that was 40 years ago. That was a total slur against. Yeah. When I was growing up, it was like a really horrific term to, to, to express, but like, we see different people have different relationships with it. And I think the important part is realizing that I I think of words as almost kind of like a blade and then certain hands, it could be used to create harm and other hands, like a surgeon, it could be used to create healing. And for some people, their relationship with language is such that they want to reappropriate and seize that power for themselves. Like, and even if it's, you know, you refer to the term as the N word that just goes to show the, like, the power that it has, because now we almost need to check in with that particular community and say, hey, is it appropriate if I use it in this context or not? And that's something that's generally not done for groups that are traditionally marginalized. Well, and it's, and, and that's, that was, when you were giving your, your keynote, that was one of the thoughts that, that crossed my mind, sure. you know, that, that occurred to me, that, you know, in essence, and I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's good, bad, neutral, or somewhere in between, but you've taken the term slants and you've made it more available. People can say it, albeit in a non-offensive way, right? It's yeah. referring to something I, more and, positive. And to be fair, the term was never really offensive. Like it, it, it was actually appropriated by racists to use it in a racialized manner. Just like many of the slurs that we have, they mm. tend to be kind of neutral terms until someone interjects it with some kind of, uh, you know, venomous in like meaning. 
Which I, I guess that might that might take the term slants and give it a distinction, maybe from some of the other types of terms we've heard. Because yeah, and that's some why other we terms say it's are like only negative. Yeah, we're trying to take it back and say, like, look, we, you can't just hijack language and use it to berate people with it. We're going to take it and do something vastly different with it. And the fact that even if people feel uncomfortable using the term, I think that's good because it again forces us to have a conversation like what do we mean by these phrases what is our intention and what are we trying to communicate with them i I know we can talk about these types of issues all day but i I don't want us to to get too far afield from the issue of the law and how your story kind of was impacted by the law and what we as lawyers can maybe learn from it so you know as you mentioned this took like a decade right and i think for a lot of lawyers every single one that i know of we always get clients who come to us and say, gosh, this just takes so long, this whole process. Because when we watch on TV, you know, the case comes in on Monday and they're in trial by Wednesday and they've got a verdict and they've appealed it by the following week and it's done, right? It's, it's very quick when you watch it on television. You got to see firsthand how slowly the wheels of justice move. In fact, even when you had oral argument at the Supreme Court, it still took another six months or so before you actually got the decision. Yeah. I guess there's a two-part question there. First is... As a, as a client, how did you come to cope with that? And how did you, how did you get yourself through that and be able to deal with this, these long periods of just hurrying up and waiting? And then number two, for lawyers, you know, since you've been on the receiving end of that, how should we counsel our clients? And how do we kind of help take them through that process of long waits? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, I thankfully had mentors who are just exceptionally gracious and and who had also spent their entire lifetimes working to bring dignity to the um, to other folks so they knew that things change slowly and I think slow change oftentimes is better it's better than rushing things through because it, it demonstrates the the need to carefully examine like the facts and and think like okay how can this process be be just? Like, what what are we missing here? What are what are the things that we need to re- truly consider? Uh, on top of that, it's being weighed against many many other things. Like, I mean, it was important to me, but I can tell you that throughout that process, we were going through economic recessions, right. turmoils. There was a uh, change in administration at the White House. There was all kinds of things happening, and people are like, "Hey, these are very very big issues. Your trademark for your band is not." super high on the priority list in terms of their hearts and minds. And I got that. And so I, I, I just knew that like, this is just a small piece of this ultimate puzzle. And I think what attorneys can do as you're working with clients is like, remind them of the much bigger picture. What is the larger fabric that you're trying to construct? And to be in communication uh, about like things that are happening. I think the the toughest thing for me was always like after we filed a brief, just waiting, waiting right. for months, and just even a quick email saying, "Hey, just to let you know, there's no updates yet, but we're watching for it." Like that can soothe a very anxious heart. And, right. and the other thing that we could do is like I was thrown so much Latin and French. I was like, <laughs> I don't understand those languages. Please explain to me what amicus brief or a sua sponte order to vacate actually mean. Like what, you know, and I could Google it, but honestly, it was but not you want to hear helpful. from your lawyer, right? Yeah, I just, I just wanted them to know that, like, were they to, for them to tell me it was okay and what I could actually do in that moment. If it was to just stand by and wait, that's fine. If it was to rally support from community organizations, that's great. But I just needed to know what I could do in that waiting period. 
what was, for you, what was the biggest surprise, maybe, of going through the legal process? Was it the wait or was it something else? The biggest surprise was probably the first time I got an invoice from a printer <laughs> for like appellate printing at the Federal Circuit. Sure. And I was like, I have a printer. I have a stapler. Can I do this? And they're like, no, you have to use an no. appellate printer. But I was like, it was thousands and thousands of dollars, and it just shocked me. And I was like, and I have to do this how many times? Right. So, yeah, I, I think it was, even though the, the legal work was very generously provided to me, it was pro bono, Right. those court fees were just astronomical. So even, even with the attorney's fees being waived, it was still something that was... It like was very difficult. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, just because there's filing fees every time you communicate with the office, if they were trying some kind of legal tactic, like, hey, let's file this particular motion. I just was thinking, like, that's that's another several, like, months of, like, income down the drain. How, how were you paying your bills during this time? I had a lot of side hustles. So I was teaching <laughs> adjunct at three different colleges. I What were you uh, teaching? Uh, was it music or business? Uh, okay. Yeah, entrepreneurship, marketing. I worked at a nonprofit. I mean, I was just finding whatever work I could find to try and pay for those bills. And and so now you said you said since this court case, you've you've kind of you're not as active a musician anymore. You, you, clearly, you're still you can still play a guitar and you can still sing, but. Are you not are you not out performing and touring anymore? We're not touring as a full band anymore, but my guitarist Joe and I are composing music. In fact, we're releasing a new album later this year. But rather than like having our voices on every track, what we're doing is we're writing the songs and we're inviting talent from the Asian American community uh, across the country to sing and play instruments on it. And so it's a really vibrant and diverse album that's uh, allowing us to use our platform to give voice to other folks that we believe should get some more attention. You talked in your keynote about the way Asian Americans were, were represented in film and in pop culture. You know, and so I, you'd, you'd put up a, a scene from Kill Bill where Lucy Liu walks in and she's cool and she's Yakuza and, it, it, and she's, she's sexy and vibrant. And I'm still waiting for something like that for the Indian American community, for the South Asian American community <laughs> to, sh- to show up in Hollywood. But it's, it's instructive, right? Because I, I, to, what do you, to what do you ascribe that? You know, why, why are, are Asian Americans in general not, not seen in that light? Of, of being cool and sexy. And I think there's powerful. not enough people behind the camera to fully appreciate or understand these cultures to write roles for them. So when you think about like the few times that Asians and South Asians have appeared on screen in the last couple of years, it's all because of creatives who are who have been that driving force. You know, like the like the film The Big Sick, mm-hmm. or um, even. Aziz Ansari had his show Masters of None. Like those wouldn't have existed without the not only the talent in front of the camera, but but, like but them choosing to go behind the camera and say like let's write these roles into existence and show that it's done, that there's a demand for it, and that could be profitable. You know, I can't tell you how how often I get upset when I when I watch a movie, right? And and they just miscast things, right? Like. You know, the tech support guy is supposed to be Indian, and they don't put an Indian guy in tech support. I'm like, come on, that's our one thing. That's our <laughs> shtick, man. I mean, yeah. come on, give it back to us. I want to reclaim it. But, you know, I, I mean, all, all jokes aside, do you think things are getting better 
in that score, or do you think do you think we're kind of stagnant? I think it's getting better. I think progress is very very slow. Sure. So one of the other things that I do on the side is I actually do. Um, Act. I, I audition for roles, and a lot of times they'll have. They're like my agent will come to me and say, "Like, hey, we got a character. It's written for you, and it and says like yeah, East right. Asian slash South Asian slash Hispanic slash Black." I was like, "I don't think that's written for, for me." me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, there was a very prominent show on Netflix that I auditioned for pre-pandemic, and I thought it was going to happen, but then they rewrote the character. Now it's white. So these processes uh, do take time, I think, because it was very comfortable for the writers to just fall back into that. Is it, do you think it's the writers, or do you think society at large is still, is still expecting to see a ter- certain type of face on a character? I mean, is it, is it the writers, or is, so I guess, well, I think put it more economic, is it supply or is it demand? It, it, I think there's a demand for it. We see that. I mean, clearly, Crazy Rich Asians, like one of the highest grossing romantic comedies of all time, showing and defying the odds when studios were like, you need to have a main character who's white. And, the, you know, the director and the writers are like, no, we, they're very, very persistent in terms of like the casting choices that they wanted to make. And that demonstrated like there is a, de- like, you know, demand for it. Fresh Off the Boat ran for multiple seasons. And every time we see uh, people who look like us on screen, it, it, you know, if it's good content, like, I don't want bad content that's <laughs> representative. I mean, right. I guess that should exist too. But, like, when it's really good, I think all people can see us as people and appreciate it. It's not like those money, those movies wouldn't have made money if it was only seen by Asian people. It's like people across multiple racial and ethnic identities saying like, I see myself in these stories. And I think that the industry needs to get on board with that more. So I guess we're starting to run a little bit short on time. So I'm going to ask you one final question, which is, which is, you know, what's, I'm going to sound a little bit like NPR here, but what's what's next for Simon Tam? I mean, you know, you've had the, the, you, you've talked about your your trademark dispute. That's obviously going to be something that's always associated. You know, at least with lawyers, they're going to look back and and cite that case. Aside from that, you know, where do you see the future for you? Where what do you think is going to be your next big project? Well, my passion right now is the nonprofit we started, the Slants Foundation, uh, where we're funding or mentoring. Uh, Asian-American artists from across the country and trying to help them build sustainable and scalable careers. I think that's where my heart is right now. And also looking for ways that I can contribute that create more of those opportunities for our communities that are oftentimes underrepresented. So Joe and I, uh, we just got accepted into a fellowship at the St. Louis Opera. We're oh, now congratulations. writing an opera. Oh, thank you. Wow. And so we're- Can you sing opera? I, I'm not performing or just writing it. Okay, good. <laughs> so there you go. Is it, is it in Italian? Nobody wants to see an opera. Will it be a Chinese opera? That'd be kind of well, cool. Well, it'll be in English, and it'll be synth-pop music. So it'll be very much an Asian-American opera. Okay. And we're also developing a theater show as well. So, uh, you know, we're just trying to, like, find different ways that we can be involved with creating art that can last in a way that uh, allows other people to step in. And that, I think that's also one of the big reasons why our album is designed in a way to allow other voices to shine. Absolutely. Well, again, Simon, this was, this was a lot of fun, but it, it does look like we've reached the end of our, of our time for this program. I want to I wanna thank you, Simon, for joining us today. This thank was you so much. A lot of fun, and thank you for your keynote. I think it, it, it got everybody on their feet, so congratulations. <laughs> no, thank you. 
And if our listeners, you know, if they if they have questions, they want to follow up, or let's say let's say we happen to get an an Asian American artist who wants to reach out and learn more, how can they reach you? I just you can hit me up at Simon the Tam on social, or just uh, my website SimonTam.org. Got it. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast, brought to you by LawPay. Thank you, LawPay. Also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or best yet, your favorite podcasting app. I'm Rocky Deer at the 2022 State Bar of Texas Annual Meeting in Houston. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.